Welcome to Moments in Transformation, the podcast brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative, ITI, the peace building project founded in South Africa, taking the lessons learned here and applying them to other mediation, negotiation and peace building efforts around the world, which aim to bring former foes together to forge deals and accept often tough compromises. We'll offer you an insider's view of the negotiation process firsthand, the moments of drama, tension and breakthrough, told by the very people who were there. I'm Karen Allen, your host for this podcast series, and I'm delighted to be joined by the veteran South African lawyer, former politician, negotiator and ITI director, Mohamed Baba. Mohamed, welcome. Hi, Karen. Looking forward to a really interesting discussion with you. So am I. Today's focus, of course, is is Palestine, one of the most protracted conflicts of our time. In Transformation Initiative, ITI uh, has been invited in to help behind the scenes, basically preparations for negotiations. Let's set the scene. It's 2015, and efforts to bring peace in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is beset by a series of knife attacks. More than 200 people stabbed as part of a new worrying escalation in tensions. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, has ordered the closure of a number of flashpoints in Jerusalem, deploying army units to quell what the media quickly dubbed the Knife Intifada. When the main political formations failed to claim responsibility, it became clear very quickly that these were lone wolf attacks, signalling a disconnect between politicians and the people on the ground. Mohamed, give us a little bit more insight into what the atmosphere was like at that time and how did ITI become involved in Palestine in 2015? ITI has two very important directors. The one is Rolf Meyer, who had become world-renowned for contributing to what is now called the South African miracle. The second, and I think more significantly, was the presence of Ibrahim Ibrahim, my fellow director. Not only is he a stalwart in the ANC, but he was also the deputy minister of uh, foreign affairs in South Africa. He was well-known, and particularly well-known in uh, Palestine amongst the Palestinian leadership, uh, there was an enormous, or there is an enormous respect for him. So the credibility of these two personalities, coupled with the fact that the South African miracle itself is well-known around the world and is a subject of many studies, I think that gave us a vantage point and an entry point. We were asked by certain progressive formations, particularly Jewish communities in the United States, who really wanted to see a settlement. And through some of their contacts in our sister organizations, they started uh, speaking to us, and we then explored the possibility of entering some degree of negotiations. I might add that the Israelis, and this is purely anecdotal, Mm. there was a degree of trust from some of the Israeli intelligence side. Uh, The intelligence community and the political community don't always sing from the same hymn page. The intelligence community sees things that politicians don't necessarily Mm -hmm. see. And for some reason or the other, what was told to us anecdotally was that the Israelis felt extremely comfortable with us because we don't judge. 
whenever they had uh, uh, interventions from other formations, whether it was from Europe or the United States, they found that they were on the defensive and being judged. ITI comes in, you've got a set of foundational principles that you work towards uh, in similar situations, trust, inclusivity, ownership. Let's pick out one of those, the, the idea of inclusivity. What did you find among the the two sides, if you like, in terms of the cohesion among the different negotiating groups? Certainly I can speak on behalf or, or about the Palestinian formations. Cohesion was a distant dream. The distrust between the various formations, whether it was Hamas, the left, uh, the PLO, they were not even speaking to each other. How it came about and how they had come to this point, uh, there are various reasons for it. There's a large population of Palestinians that live in Israel. Mm. They have, are politically represented and there are several parties, different parties, that uh, represent Palestinian or Israeli-Palestinian interests in the Knesset. Mm. Then you have the West Bank, which for a large period was largely dominated by the PLO. Mm -hmm. And then you have Gaza, which is largely has a large representation in Hamas itself. And that in itself attracted different, a stratified degree of material, uh, material wealth mm -hmm. or materialism. And that stratified that society and also created intra-party suspicion. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, the backing, it's also their proxy interests that exist there. So there may be different countries that, uh, that support different formations and the different countries may be doing it for their own interests. Yeah. And so, you know, you have this very fragmented um, Palestinian view, if you like. What was your role as ITI? It's no secret that uh, the balance of power is rather skewed in the negotiations or the previous negotiations. And Israel is a powerful country. Uh, it has many resources. Intellectually, it, is, uh, I'd say it, has, it has achieved quite a bit. And uh, here you had a fragmented opposition. But at the same time, you had lone wolf uh, uh, activity taking place. Any negotiating partner would like to negotiate with a partner or an adversary that can carry a constituency. Mm -hmm. And they would like to have the confidence that any decision taken by the adversary would be respected by a strong constituency. Yeah. And if your negotiating partner is unable to carry this constituency, the value of your agreements and your deals uh, um, go nowhere. I mean, sure. there's no value in it. Sure. Yes. sure. And obviously, the parallels with South Africa just leap out. Again, for our listeners, just, just highlight those, those comparisons from, you know, the time when it was so difficult to try and bring all those different interests together uh, and how, in a sense, de Klerk ended up being a, a good negotiating partner because he was able to contain the fringes. He had this referendum, whites only referendum, about whether they should enter negotiations with the ANC. This was in the late, uh, late, uh, well, a late, sorry, early nineties. Yes. But, but uh, the fact that he was able to get a significant uh, vote and support 
for the initiatives he was taking in entering negotiations meant to the ANC that they now had a negotiating partner or an adversary whom can carry an entire uh, constituency. And I think, in retrospect, that it was perhaps one of the major contributions to our, our, our peace agreement, the, the fact that both the ANC and the Nationalist Party carried constituencies that formed, well, more than 70 to 80 percent of the South African population. And once we had them on board, uh, those recalcitrant partners had very little space to operate in. And this was the incentive we put to the Israelis. And we said that, how do you negotiate with a fragmented adversary or a partner? And uh, in any negotiation, it is important to be able to throw an incentive to the different parties. Certainly, both the Israeli government and the Israeli people and people who support Israel want a peaceful settlement. The people that approached us from the United States of America, some of the Jewish uh, uh, formations there, they certainly were concerned that the peace process was going nowhere. And were you seeing similar fragmentation on the Israeli side? I, I can't comment on that, but what I can tell you is, as I've stated, and I don't want to overstate it, that sometimes the intelligence community knows a little more, as we saw in South Africa, because it was the intelligence community that communicated to P.W. Bertha that perhaps he needs to be a little less rigid in his approach. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Declerc came in. Uh, likewise, in, in Israel and in any other country, the intelligence community are able to see data and read things mm -hmm. and do a bit of scenario planning and don't have the pressure of, of voters. It's so interesting because on the one hand, it's sort of logical. On the other hand, it's quite counterintuitive because one assumes that you know, your adversary around the negotiating table wants to see you weak so that they're able to push their, um, their position much more strongly. But you know, it, it's the reverse that, that you're talking about. Yes, um, <laughs> I'd like to add to that, that the one lesson we learned is also don't paint your, 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 your adversary in a corner that they have no way out. Mm -hmm. As a negotiator, you must always give your adversary a way out. They've also got to save face amongst their constituencies. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, you assist your adversaries to be able to communicate to their constituencies. The key is that you must be committed to an outcome and whatever it takes to achieve that outcome. You're listening to the Moments in Transformation podcast with me, Karen Allen, and my guest, the veteran South African mediator, Mohammed Baba. Today, our focus is on Palestine and the behind-the-scene efforts to try and find common ground between two highly polarised parties in one of the most protracted negotiations of our time. Mohammed, when we talk about um, preparations for negotiations and all the back work, backroom work that's what ITI does. Um, one of the things that has been a common theme, I think, throughout these podcasts is this idea of looking for areas of similarity rather than looking for areas of difference. Um, I know Rolf's talked about that a little bit when he's um, discussed Colombia, South Sudan, Myanmar, the other podcasts in this series. For you, how important was that as part of that process to prepare each side for further negotiations? Well, on the intra-party 
uh, conflicts, for want of a better word, within the Palestinian society, it was extremely important. We had to emphasize that they should not take the eye off the ball. Mm-hmm. And they, the common thread was to see a free Palestine and a Palestine that was not bedeviled with the violence that it, uh, that it encounters on a daily basis. Uh, and that was a uniting factor. But uh, once your own interests come, uh, come to the fore, you, all humans tend to forget and we tend to emphasize our differences. Mohammed, when you talk about trying to build coalitions of interests, uh, South Africa obviously played a very important role in that in terms of physical visits. We've talked about building coalitions of interests and people being often more willing to talk outside of their conflict setting and neutral territory than inside. You took a group of Palestinians to a isolated wine farm in the Western Cape. It sounds idyllic, but what happened? Oh, it was idyllic, very beautiful. But it was it was interesting observing um, in 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 discussions and negotiations. Sometimes it's the side meetings that produce more. And I was sitting with my colleague Ibrahim Ibrahim, who himself had spent twenty years in jail collectively, and we were having discussions, side meetings with uh, members of Hamas and Fatah. And I was adding up there no less than collectively. People had spent 80 years or more in jail in that group. Mm-hmm. I almost felt uh, left out and, and, and guilty. But interestingly is how our own sacrifices can become compromised mm-hmm. if we lose sight of what the objective yeah. is. And we allow, and that is the message we kept on emphasizing that in the end, it's a Palestinian problem. It's not. The international community is not going to solve your problem. You've made the sacrifices. You suffer the hardships. And do you think once they left and they boarded their flights back to the Middle East that that resonated and that actually helped propel some of the progress that was made? Oh, look, formally the the processes changed and, and formally the discussions changed as a result of what happened in the United States, the elections of 2016. But at a personal level, I'm told very reliably, not in fact I'm told, I know, that the discussions and the linkages now continue. Was it easier for them to talk among themselves outside of the Middle East setting, if you like? There's something very South African about the concept of a lachotla or a workshop. (laughs) You know, these are uniquely South African concepts. And we tend to take them to isolated places without the cell phones and the distractions. And we have to eat together, we have to have coffee together, we have to take our tea breaks mm-hmm. together. And uh, it builds a camaraderie. And uh, it also then allows people to focus on what really is important. And this idea of, of stratification within the Palestinian bloc, it reminds me of this, you know, this conversation that we have still today in South Africa about struggle credentials, who had the biggest part to play? Were you in exile? Were you here fighting against the barricades? And, you know, we, we were talking before about those South African comparisons about 
people in the homelands who um, had been involved in parliament, you know, were they seen as sellouts? How did you get over that sense of hierarchy, a hierarchy of oppression, a hierarchy of interests? Look, when Codessa started and when the leadership came from exile, I was extremely fortunate to have been exposed to what I believe some of the greatest leadership in the world at the time. So I'd like to attribute it to Nelson Mandela alone, but there was a collective leadership. There was Walter Sisulu or Tambo, and it was a collective wisdom. And I'll never forget, uh, we were young, wild, angry, and romantic at the same time. And uh, our anger sometimes got the better of us. And Mandela warned us and actually cautioned us and said that an ordinary black policeman, yes, they may have been carrying out the orders of an apartheid regime, But at the end of the day, that person had to put food on the table and needed a job. Instead of making that person an object of hatred, of our hatred, why don't you see him as a victim of apartheid as well? And the similarities of with homeland leaders as well. Uh, were they there on their own volition or was is it just the nature of life mm -hmm. and, and the genius of the apartheid system that was able to divide us in that way? Yeah. There was a similarity, or there is a similarity that exists in Israel. So there were Palestinians that either by choice or by, de uh, by design, I'm not certain, but many families remained behind is in Israel. So there are significant populations, is uh, Palestinian populations that live in Israel. Because Israel is much wealthier, because they are less, uh, or rather there is a, a system that exists there, uh, they are materially much better off than those living in the West Bank and then compare West Bank to, to Gaza, much, much better off. And because the Palestinians who were living behind the Green Line chose to participate in the Knesset, the their parliament, parliament, many Palestinians on the other side felt that they may have sold out. Mm -hmm. Yet some of the Palestinians that we met In fact, I remember the one person who facilitated a lot of meetings for us, his son was in jail at the time. So the degree of suffering also stratifies you yes. and, and your access to, to, to some of the facilities. And it was, it's a strong dividing line. And that was our first task. Trust me that within Israeli Palestinians, there were divisions as well. They were the more secular organizations. They were more lefty organizations. And Ibrahim, Ibrahim and I and uh, Ipsa, uh, represented uh, by uh, Fazila Mayat, our first meeting was behind the Green Line. And we met the different political formations that participated in the Knesset. And they were going to go into an election. And what we tried to emphasize to them, that whose purpose are you going to be serving? Mm if you're going to divide yourself and go on a different ticket. So I'd like to believe, and I, uh, I hope I'm not sounding immodest and overstating uh, this, but I'd like to believe that we did contribute to the Palestinian people who participated in the Knesset going there under one ticket. Well, that's what I was going to say, is by the time ITI exits from this particular project in, uh, in Israel, what, what, what was the status of things? Donald Trump became president. They then saw different avenues, or not they, but one or two parties saw different avenues, uh, and they didn't have to pursue what we had put on the table. 
And then there was the Cairo uh, discussions that took place thereafter. Uh, some of the parties thought that they could achieve some of the objectives through that avenue. I have a feeling, and it's a gut feeling, but also reading what's going on with the Biden administration, there's a very high likelihood that we'd be there. I was going to ask you, that was going to be my next question. Now with the new president in the United States due to take over in January, um, how do you feel about the prospects of the Israel-Palestine peace process? I must add to you, Karen, that uh, I come from a particular background. I am Muslim, uh, and uh, by virtue of being Muslim, one, one takes certain positions until you are exposed. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd be very unfair to look at anybody as a homogenous people. In South Africa, we thought, before we, we actually spoke to them, that uh, the Nationalist Party were, a mono, uh, what is the word? Uh, uh, well, were not homogenous. And uh, they all were little robots uh, mm. marching to one tune. And that's not what we encountered. They were doves. They were hawks. They were those that were genuinely wanted, felt apartheid was a crime. Uh, they were those that were more pragmatic, less spiritual in it. Mm -hmm. And likewise, um, this is the case in Israel as well. They are Communist Party people there. They are lefties. They are genuinely religious people there who for their own reasons support the state of Israel, many on identity. Yeah. That doesn't mean that everybody is bad. They are genuinely very good people that we interact and, and, and not only assisted us, but promoted uh, what, the work we are doing. Because I think people are tired. Fatigue is setting in. Yeah. And uh, people just want to live normal lives. And you haven't got jaded. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You haven't got jaded by this. You still have this fundamental core sense that peace is achievable, even in the most intractable of conflicts. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure my colleagues may have told you about South Sudan and, and many other conflict areas. Uh, there are two things I've learned. You never give up hope. Never, ever, ever. Because there's an inherent nature in human beings. Mm -hmm which you need to explore and exploit, might I add. And the second thing is that somehow, even in South Africa, there were the cards fell in a certain way, and you get certain windows of opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. They may be small, they may be narrow, and they, they're limited in time. The Iron Curtain coming down, obviously, was such a big Absolutely. one in South Africa. Yes. And if you don't exploit that, timing is absolutely mm. crucial. And if you don't exploit it at the right time, mm -hmm. you may lose an opportunity in history. Mohammed Baba, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to Moments in Transformation, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of international peacemaking, brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative ITI. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then why not drop us a line to ivor, that's I-V-O-R, at intransformation.org. Thank you, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Bye for now.